0: Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 21 through 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. You shall not murder. That is the word of the Lord.
1: Hello again, New Hope Fellowship, and welcome to all of you who are visiting with us today, we're super happy that you're here with us, and we do look forward to, to meeting you and getting to know you. I'd if I, if I, I look forward to meeting and getting to know you if I haven't yet. Um, we've been studying the Ten Commandments lately, as many of you know, and I wonder if I asked everyone here to name one commandment that you have not broken, I'm guessing that the Sixth Commandment would be the most popular choice. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. This might be the one that most of us say, hey, I've kept this one. (laughs) I've kept this one. Several of you um, mentioned that last week's topic, when we looked at the command to honor our father and our mother, some of you said that was, that was super relevant for me, that, that commandment is, because it's something that many of us struggle with knowing how to do. How do I honor my mom? How do I honor my dad? What, how does that speak to the way that I relate to uh, people that are older than me um, in my family? It's something we many of us struggle to know how to do. But, but this week, you might say, commandment number six, I, I, that's not really a struggle for me. I don't, I don't struggle with with homicide, right? I don't struggle with murdering people. I kind of know I'm not supposed to do that, and, uh, and, I, and I haven't done that. You might think, finally, we've come to a commandment that we're all not guilty of breaking. Ah, oh, we can rest today. But um, I've got good news and bad news for you, folks. Good news and bad news. We, we are going to study Uh, this commandment today. And we're going to see that when Jesus opens up the lid on the sixth commandment to show us uh, its deeper meaning, what we find out is that we've all broken it. In spirit, at least. Tragically, all of us are guilty to some degree of not keeping this commandment. And I trust you're going to see that today, but I also hope that you'll see what God has done about that guilt. And that's the good news, that God who The God who created life, the God who hates murder, he himself surrendered his own life into the hands of murderers in order to rescue people who hate, people who hurt others like us. He did that to rescue people like us and to give us life when we actually deserve death. I hope we see that too. So commandment number six, you shall not murder. Remember, we can take all ten of the commandments, the whole uh, decalogue as it's been called, and we could summarize it this way. Love God and love your neighbor. The, the, the first four commandments, they focus on how we love God, our, our, relation, our vertical relationship to him. And the last six commandments, they focus on how we love God one another, our horizontal relationships to other people. Commandment number six tells us that one way we love people is by not murdering them. Simple enough, right? You might think, wow, if loving is that simple, I'm a very loving person. All I have to do is just not kill you. And that means I love you. Well before we look at some of the implications of this law, let's see what this commandment tells us about God, what it reveals to us about God. It's a question we've been asking with each of these commandments. What does it reveal to us about our God? Well the sixth commandment at least tells us that God has invested every human, every single human being with inestimable beauty and worth. He has invested every human that he created with infinite beauty and worth. Psalm 8 tells us this. The psalmist asks, what is man, what is humanity that that you're so mindful of him, God? And, And what is the son of man that you care for him? Verse 5, the psalmist says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Psalm 8 tells us that you, it tells you that you have profound worth. Your soul, your eternal soul, and your body itself are infinitely valuable. In fact, God will one day renew the bodies of all his people. He's going to rid our bodies of every effect of sin and brokenness. But even now, right now, In this fallen state, my wife before said, some of us, we feel broken, right? Maybe we're getting over sore throats, or maybe some of us are dealing with disabilities and diseases and a profound brokenness in our bodies. But even in this fallen state, you have profound dignity. God has crowned you with glory and honor. And this is not only true of you, it's true of everyone around you too. You are all. As I stand here, I stand before a congregation of glorious creations. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, he said, there are no ordinary people. You, he says, have never talked to a mere mortal, end quote. You've never talked to a mere mortal. His point is this. His point is everyone that you meet is a miraculous creation designed to experience eternal life. And this is why God singles out murder as evil. We we might all agree that murder is evil, but we might not really have ever thought about why. The Sixth Commandment tells us that it's evil, and when we start to unpack it and we see what else the Bible says about murder, we find that this is what makes it so evil, because murder is a vicious attack on what God values. Murder denigrates And destroys what God calls precious. He loves humanity and He gave us life to steward, to keep, to nurture, to value. You know, Jesus said in John 15 that greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest act of love, the greatest manifestation of love is this when someone gives up their life to save a friend. But what is it that makes that, that the greatest form of love? Well, it's because the most valuable possession that any of us has is our life. Of course, of course your life is valuable to you, I expect. But the Sixth Command, tells us that your life is not just valuable to you, your life is inherently worth more than even you realize. It's objectively priceless. You know, we give value to things, right? Something may have emotional value to us just because it matters to us. And to someone else, it doesn't really matter. Well, some things, our society has said, this is valuable, right? If you, if you have a, a big diamond, everyone in our society would say, that is worth money. Gold is worth money. We gave it that worth, right? Someone decided to value that. We all agreed, <laughs> But when it comes to the value of human life, we're looking at something altogether different. You see, the value that each life in this room has is not value that was given by a loved one; that was invested in you by God. It is objective truth. You are inherently worth more than you realize. Michael Horton, theologian, writes these words. He says. Quote, in Christian belief, the significance of human beings over all other species of animal life resides in the image of God. Imago Dei in Latin. Which is stamped on each person as an artist signs his masterpieces. The image of God, says Horton, is what makes you valuable. What does that mean? Well, in Genesis 1... Verse 27, it says that God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God. You were created in the image of God. There have been debates over the years about what that exactly means. What is the Imago Dei? Some say it means that we were created to resemble God to look like God in some limited ways, right? Like a, like a sculpture or, or a self-portrait resembles the artist who made it. Others say the image of God means that we bear God's stamp or signature on us because we belong to him. That, that's what Horton's pointing to in that, in that quote that I read you. But the image of God might also mean that we were made to, to serve as God's representatives, here on earth, to serve on his behalf. And the fact is, I think that all of those ideas of what the image of God means, they all have some truth in them. But The most important thing for us to see is this. It's because you were made in the image and likeness of God that you are different from every other created thing. You are fundamentally different. It's why you are more valuable than a tree, a firefly, a puppy, or a 3,000-carat diamond. Not because others have agreed that you're more valuable, but because God says, my image is on you. You matter more than all these other things. This also means that when you destroy a human, you're attacking the image of God. Over the past few years, folks have been knocking down statues, right, especially in the South. Lots of old uh, Civil War generals and and figures have been toppled. That is, their statues have been toppled. Why? No, No one's toppling a statue of General Robert E. Lee because they don't like bronze monuments. No, they're toppling those statues because they don't like Robert E. Lee. They find him deplorable, his actions deplorable. If I brought a photo of Patrick Mahomes, quarterback of Kansas City Chiefs up here, if I had a poster of his and I proceeded to tear it publicly, none of you would say, oh, Rob clearly doesn't like posters. <laughs> Rob's got, Rob doesn't like photographs. I, I wonder why. No, you would say, Rob clearly doesn't like Patrick Mahomes. I wouldn't do that, by the way. I don't hate Patrick Mahomes. He seems like a fine gentlemen but you would know by that action that you've got something against the guy whose image you just attacked and that's why he's destroying that image i you see when we destroy a human it's an attack on the image of god and in god's eyes it's a direct offense to him on the flip side when we value and we protect human life all human life all human life it says something about how we view the god who made all humans. God has invested every human with inestimable beauty and worth. This uh, commandment reveals that to us, but this commandment also confronts us with some things. We need to see what it confronts us with. Here's one thing it confronts us with. We don't value every human life the way God does, do we? We don't value human life the way he does. We all pick and choose which lives to value. Even if you've never taken a life, you have failed to value your neighbor's life in a way that that corresponds accurately to its worth. And in so doing, you and I, we failed to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Think about it. Think about people who who drive you to anger. I don't mean just the people, I'm talking about a special kind of anger. I'm not talking just about the people who get on your nerves sometimes and make you lose your temper, because sometimes those are the people we love the most that can do that to us. I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about the people that drive you to bitter anger, vengeful anger, that make you want to get back at them. Perhaps you've even hated some of them. Perhaps you've even desired their demise. Isn't that what I've just described? Isn't all of that really at the root of what murder is? Isn't it just murder in a kind of seed form? Vengeful thoughts, the bitter anger, hatred. It's all just the root of murder. Matthew 5.21, Jesus says this. Jesus says, "Have You you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is what Jesus does with these commandments. We're going to see this throughout the rest of this series. Jesus does this with many of these commandments. He says, you've heard the commandment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, Jesus isn't just interested in surface obedience to this commandment. The commandments all are profound. They push in deep into who we are and the way we think. Jesus is going below the surface here, and he says, you've heard this law, and I know you well enough to know that when you hear this law, you think, oh, I'm good, I'm fine. Yes, clearly, killers deserve to be punished, but I'm not a killer. And, And Jesus wants us to pause on that. Because his focus, as usual, is not just on behavior. His focus is on the heart. And and he's saying, if love means to desire the good of another, then how many times have you done the opposite of love? How often have you desired someone's demise? Whether it's the colleague who undermined you or betrayed you, and you've had it out for them ever since or it's the classmate who mistreated you, or gossiped about you, or it's the driver who cut you off on the Bronx River Parkway. Don't some of us have murder in our hearts towards, uh, towards politicians we dislike? Whether it's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or George Santos, or President Biden, depending on where you land politically, we all pick and choose. I'm guessing that those particular folks I just named have been murdered multiple times this past week in the hearts of many. They've been murdered in the hearts of many people, even many who claim to love Jesus, have looked at those individuals and others and have said, worthless, trash. In Matthew 5, Jesus spotlights our hearts, and he calls attention to our words because, because our words are an overflow of our hearts, aren't they? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he says, when, you're, when your words are hateful, there's murder in your heart. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. <laughs> and Jesus reminds us of the ways that, that we diminish people and we denigrate people, people who are made in the image of God, with our words. And the sixth commandment confronts us with that. It confronts us with that. James, if you remember, in his letter, he, he probably had this commandment in mind, in fact, when he wrote in James 3, 9, he writes, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. We praise the Lord, we curse the image of the Lord in people. And then he goes on to say, this can't be, this cannot be. What are evil thoughts and words but murder in seed form? They, they are acts of aggression against the image of God in our neighbors. We need to think that, that, that way. Evil thoughts and words directed at others are acts of aggression against the image of God in our neighbors. But Jesus takes us even deeper than that. He pushes in, he shows us that, we don't just sin against people with our angry thoughts and our words, that, that, that aggressive, active, kind of murderous behavior. No, he says we do it passively too by simply ignoring people, by ignoring the suffering, the pain, the needs of others. It's another way that we devalue life. The parable of the Good Samaritan captures this powerfully, Many of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke 10. Jesus tells a story of a, a traveler who is assaulted by robbers and, and these people, they beat him up, they stripped him and they, in doing so, they broke the spirit of the sixth commandment. They broke the sixth commandment. Even though Jesus says they only left him half dead. He wasn't, he wasn't 100% dead. They left him half dead. They still broke the spirit of that commandment but they weren't the only ones who broke the spirit of that sixth commandment. When they left that man, there half dead. Because Jesus tells us that a priest happens to walk by and see that man. And then later a Levite does this, and he walks by and he sees him too. They're both important Jewish uh, religious folks. And neither one of them stops to do a thing for this man. Eventually... Remember, he's, there, he's half dead, and these people walk by, two of them, they see him there, and they say, he's half dead, we're content to let him finish out this process of dying. And in so doing, they break the sixth commandment. But eventually a Samaritan man, a minority, a foreigner in some sense, finds him. And he intervenes. And the Samaritan man spends time and he spends money to bring this victim back to health and back to safety. And then Jesus, after telling the story in, in verse 36 of Luke 10, he asks, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In other words, who loved this guy? Of all the three who saw him, who valued his life? And the answer was simple, it was obvious. But the implications are, they're profound. Jesus is teaching us that by withholding mercy, by withholding resources, when we see people who need them, we are failing to love our neighbor. We're failing to see their infinite worth. And in effect, we break the sixth commandment. Proverbs 3 it says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you now. You see, you see what the proverb is saying? It's, it's saying don't, don't walk by, see someone in need, and withhold good from them when it is due them. Don't withhold good from whom it is due. And the question you might ask, as I do when I read that, is well, to whom is good due? Like, who do I owe this kind of good to? In other words, who am I responsible to care about? Because there's a lot of people in this world. Who am I responsible to care about and have compassion on and to, and to support and meet the needs of? That happens to be the same exact question that, that they asked Jesus in Luke 10 after he told the story, when it, that it led him <laughs> to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And the reason perhaps we answer that question is because we, we want to limit our responsibility to some degree, right? We want to we limit the, the, our responsibility. We, We want to offer compassion to people we think deserve it. But this commandment confronts us with the ways that we ignore the needs of others. Perhaps justify that by saying they don't deserve our attention, they don't deserve our help. According to the proverb. We do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. And then he says in verse 28, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So it seems that the one to whom our care is due, the one to whom our good is due, well, it's our neighbor. That's the only qualification. <laughs> it doesn't have to be any more than our neighbor. That's everyone, folks. That's everyone. Everyone deserves our compassion, everyone deserves our care to one level or another. You see, the, the this commandment and these corresponding passages in scripture, they they confront us powerfully. And by the way, doesn't this commandment also show us how jaded we are to suffering? How conditioned we've become to maybe not even notice suffering not even be affected by the death all around us i mean we're we're surrounded by news of death aren't we school shootings other acts of terror war violent crime it's almost like if we were to allow ourselves to care about every instance of violence and death that we hear about we would be overwhelmed we can't it's too much because our world is filled with death, and in some ways, our society—some ways—not only is our society filled with death, our society in some ways celebrates death, which is an odd thing, isn't it? We celebrate it. This week, maybe you saw this. Uh, this week, some Democratic members of Congress posed for pictures with lapel pins that read "abortion" and with, a, with like a heart for the O. And then, alongside those images, I saw images of Republican Congress people posing with lapel pins shaped like assault rifles. Did you see this? I thought, what in the world does this say about us? That our leaders, our elected leaders, smile and wear instruments of death. And it tells me that we live in a culture of death. It makes me wonder if we're so numbed, even as God's people, that we're numb to it. Here's what Edmund Clowney says. He's another theologian worth listening to. He says, In the sight of the holy God, we are guilty of dishonoring life. In our rebellion against his goodness and truth, we fail to stand up for the weak and helpless. We keep our food to ourselves, forgetting the widow and the orphans. We are too frightened to engage in the defense of the unborn of our land. This cuts across political lines, you know. What Clowney's saying here, I mean, he mentions the lives of the unborn, but then he also mentions the lives of widows and orphans. And I've heard it said many times that in our society today, sometimes we can equate widows and orphans in our society, in some cases, very similar to the plight, the plight of widows and orphans in the ancient world, are very similar to the plight in our world of single mothers and unwanted children. So you're saying on the one hand, some of us will ignore the plight of unborn children. Some of us maybe will will, will care about those lives, but we will care very little about the lives of at-risk moms and unwanted children. It cuts across political lines, and it shows us how little we value life, at least how little we value some life. But thanks be to God, this... uh, This commandment doesn't just confront us, it teaches us some things. It teaches us to embrace an ethic of life in the midst of a culture of death. We can do this as God's people. We can embrace an ethic of life in the midst of a culture of death. And I want to share with you a few suggestions on how we can do that. Here's one way. We can cultivate a sense of others' worth. We can do the hard work of trying to get a sense of just how valuable our neighbors are. And and how do we do this? I think one way we can do this is by taking what we read in in, in Psalm 8, when, 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 when the psalmist says, you have crowned us with glory and honor. And we can look at the people that we tend to despise, the people we tend to not care about very much, and engage in this discipline. of Saying to ourselves, and perhaps even to them, God has made, has crowned them with glory and honor person you don't care to listen to, the person whose behavior is deplorable to you, the person who you think is undeserving of your attention and your respect, tell yourself, because this is true, God has crowned that person with glory and honor. You owe them good. I think another way for us to cultivate a sense of others' worth is to pray for the people that we so easily despise. It's hard to continue despising people when we're praying for them, isn't it? Another way we can do this is by not dehumanizing people, even with the language we use. Sometimes I hear people, and I've probably done this myself too, where we'll use language about someone that we don't like. We'll say, ah, that person, it's a monster, This person is a monster, behave like an animal. We use these words that are like just dehumanizing. You might say, oh, that's stupid. It doesn't matter if we use those words. It's just a metaphor. I understand it's just a metaphor. I also think that metaphors shape the way we think. The metaphors we use about people change the way we think about them. It's so common. I hear people all the time, this person's a piece of blank. How in the world does someone who believes that God has made all of humanity in his image call anyone anything like that. It's an offense against God. Here's another way that we can embrace an ethic of life in the midst of a culture of death. We can consider life and death issues through the lens of the scriptures, not just our preferred party's platform. Here's what I'm saying here. We're all to some degree being discipled and taught by the news that we take in, by the, the, the political punditry that we listen to, uh, and it's, it shapes us to some degree to value certain issues and certain the lives behind those issues more than we value other lives. So we'll begin to intuitively speak up for one life and ignore another. So again, the the, the, the you know one one segment of of the church or one segment of the world may speak up for the rights of unborn children. Another might speak up for the rights of the incarcerated for the elderly, or for the undocumented. I think that when we consider those life and death issues through the lens of scripture, we'll be much less likely to pick and choose who to care about and who not to care about. There's a reason that Christ's followers throughout history have, the church throughout history, has stood against things like elective abortion on demand. we have stood up against things like euthanasia, By by euthanasia, I mean the the intentional killing of someone who is terminally ill or sick. It's killing, in in, in effect, to prevent further suffering, right? I define that. Maybe you don't need me to define that. I define that because I can distinctly remember being about 10 years old in church, and my pastor, Pastor Felty, told me when I was 10 years old, he said to us, God stands against euthanasia. And I thought... What in the why does God have a problem with, with young people in Asia? I didn't understand why. And I was confused. And I was confused for much longer than I'd like to admit until someone explained to me what euthanasia was. So I explained it to you in the hopes that some of you who might be confused no longer are. It's true. It's why God's people look at suicide and say, no, no, this is a a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. No matter what kind of suffering is, is happening beyond that, we have compassion and we have love for people who struggle with suicidal ideation, and yet at the same time, we must speak truth and say, no, this life is not yours. This life is God's, and it's a gift. And God says, do not murder. That's why we stand against assisted suicide. Although it's called mercy, and it can be motivated by a desire to show mercy, it's wrong-headed, God says. And, and, and when it comes to all those issues, whether it's abortion or euthanasia or assisted suicide or suicide, we, we can acknowledge the complexity of all that. Like, we, we don't have to simplify it and just say, we, we don't have to oversimplify it. We can say, look, it's complex, it's multi-layered and multifaceted. And, st- and, and, it, and there are so many problems and variables involved in trying to understand why someone would do any of those things. And yet at the same time, as we acknowledge the complexities, we can still say killing isn't a viable solution. We must look elsewhere for solutions. We must find some other way. Again, if we're gonna have a, if we're gonna embrace an ethic of life, we need to be people whose ideas are being formed by the scriptures, rather than being formed by just any other voices. Michael Horton, I quoted him before. He says, although many evangelicals oppose abortion, this is, hes talking about this issue because you know, within within evangelicalism in the United States, um, elective abortion—that is, you know, abortion on demand—is something that many have stood up against. He says. Although many evangelicals oppose abortion, there is a curious silence on nearly every other issue where the pro-life ethic commanded by Scripture is at risk. He's saying saying when we talk about pro-life in America, it's it's a very selective kind of pro-life. It's not a holistic pro-life. It's not not pro-all of life. He says just take a cursory glance at a concordance. And it will reveal how concerned God is about the treatment of the homeless, the poor, the weak, the minorities, aliens and strangers, and others too often marginalized. A truly Bible-shaped ethic, New Hope, a truly Bible-shaped ethic of life will make us want uh, the the safety of of every unborn child and the well-being of every at-risk mother. It'll lead us to value the life of the elderly, the incarcerated, the undocumented, the abused. It'll lead us to care about the earth that we live on, which God has given us to sustain life. These aren't left-wing and right-wing causes. But here's the third, here's the last way I want to suggest that we can embrace a culture of life or an ethic of life. Pay attention to and seek to meet the needs of poor and vulnerable people. See, God is calling us more, when he says don't murder, he's telling us to do more than just not murder. Paying attention to and seeking to meet the needs of the poor and vulnerable. It's the positive flip side of this command to not murder. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 16th century, um, deals with the Ten Commandments and asks questions about each of the Ten Commandments. And here's one of the questions that it asks about the Sixth Commandment. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? In other words, if I don't kill my neighbor, have I kept this command? The catechism says no. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, and gentleness, mercy, and friendliness towards him. Look, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. You see, the opposite of murder is not don't murder. The opposite of murder is preserve life. Jesus taught this. This isn't just in a 16th century catechism. Jesus taught it in Matthew 25. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And by the way, all these issues, all the things that he's talking about here all have to do with the preservation of life, right? I was hungry. I needed food. You can't live without food. You can't live without drink. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me, um, it's, been fam- it's been said that, that in the first century Roman world, prisoners were not provided for, they were not given clothes, they were not given food, they were not given medicine, anything that the prisoner was going to get was going to have to be brought from the outside by friends. Friends had to come, bring clothes, bring medicine. So to leave someone you know in prison was to leave them to die. Jesus says, You didn't leave me to die. You came and you brought what I needed. I was gonna freeze to death. You brought me clothes. I was gonna I was gonna die of thirst. You brought me drink, etc. And then verse 37, it says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them: Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. You see what Jesus is saying. By preserving the life of a human, you are honoring the one that that human was made in the image of. By preserving the life of even the least, in your regard, human, you are honoring Jesus. Because the image of Jesus is on that human. First John three says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet does, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And th- this is helpful for us, I think, because when we, what, because we're surrounded by so much need, it may feel oppressive and overwhelming to even think. Wait a second, God holds me responsible to care for the needs of my neighbors. There's too many needs. There's too many neighbors. How can I do it? And so as we push in closer, we see what is God really warning us against? He's warning us against, according to 1 John, seeing a brother, a neighbor in need, and closing our hearts. Closing our hearts. You see, that it's, 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 the, kind of, it's, it's the kind of response that says, I don't want to have compassion for you. I don't want to preserve your life. The fact is we are limited. there's no doubt we are extremely limited. Even the proverb that we read earlier um, addresses this. It says it says, "Don't withhold good from whom it's due, when it's in your power to do good, right? When it's, the assumption is sometimes it's not in our power to do good. Our resources are limited, and we don't always have the wherewithal to meet every need. It's true. But he says, he says "Don't withhold when it's in your power. When you have, don't withhold." Don't say go and come back later and delay for no reason. Refuse to help for no reason. Jesus himself did not meet every single physical need that he encountered, did he? He met many of them, many more than you or I ever will. But he also walked away from some needs. He also bypassed some. But he was always attentive, always open, always willing, never stingy, never greedy who's never hoarding for himself. So yes, we need to be realistic about our own resources, our own limitations, but what the commandment is calling us to do is to have an open willingness to meet the needs of others. An open willingness And some of the ways that I think we obey the sixth commandment is by meeting the needs of others individually. But a lot of it, I I believe, happens at the community level. What I mean is this, by belonging to a church and supporting a local church, you get to participate in the meeting of needs that maybe you don't even know about, but those needs are being addressed from within the church right so you contribute to the church your time your energy and funds what happens is that some of the some of what is contributed to the church much of it goes to meet particular needs through our mercy ministry meeting income needs health needs mental health needs you're doing it you're doing this when you contribute to the church but also, as a community, we get to participate, we get to partner with people outside of this church that are meeting needs. We get to partner with people like Expect Hope who are caring for mothers, at-risk moms and their babies. We get as a church to, su- to support a refugee family from Ukraine that's now safely settled in the States, in South Carolina. You've got to be a part of that a walking out of the sixth commandment you're preserving life you're rescuing life we just recently got to talk with and and learn about um, amazing folks at uh, the Tanzan Psychiatric Hospital in Nepal good friends of Becca who she introduced us to and we're looking forward in the in the coming days to partner with them to actually help rescue lives, the lives of, and meet the needs of people that are perhaps among the poorest on this planet. God sees that and he delights in it. He delights in it. So, as we close, we need to close with a word of hope here. As you hear this command, you can't for a second lose sight of the gospel. You can't we will be overwhelmed. The gospel speaks to our failure to obey the sixth commandment and the gospel meets us with grace. That's the good news that I mentioned earlier. It's the good news that God who created life, he hates murder and yet he gave his own life into the hands of murderers to rescue people who hate and hurt people to give us life. Jesus Christ, think about it, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, experienced murder. He willingly was killed brutally. Consider that for a moment. We, we humans, we became murderers early on in our human history. Some of you know of a man named Cain who's motivated by envy and anger, killed his own brother, Abel. In Genesis 4 tells us, the Lord said, What have you done? You've killed your brother. What have you done? And he says, your your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, Abel's blood cried out for justice. And ever since then, we humans have continued to hate. We've continued to hurt and kill one another. we've, We've ignored the suffering and the loss and the death of our neighbors so that our hands have been covered with blood. And the cry for justice rises up to a holy God. The same God who says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, Genesis 9, 6. Because God made man in his own image. And Into that mess, into that murderous mess of human history, Jesus himself steps in. And what does he do? He steps in to heal. And he brings dead people back from death. <laughs> And he shows us what it means to value and preserve life. He shows us what it means to live by an ethic of life. But we need more than just an example from him, don't we? The blood that was shed by humanity cries out for justice. We are deserving of death. And so Jesus surrendered his own body, his own life, to suffer the death that we deserve. We we broke this commandment. We broke the covenant that God had made with us. But Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, Jesus mediates this, this new covenant. And, and, and Hebrews 12 tells us that his blood, Jesus' blood, poured out on the cross, it, quote, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? You see, Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood satisfied that justice, paid for our murderous thoughts and words and actions. This means forgiveness for all who believe in him. It means hope for us. If you, if you look at your life and you and you think I have blood on my hands, I have killed. Whether it's through my words and, and thoughts or I have killed, maybe, maybe you have an experience with abortion that, that, that you struggle to, to make sense of now. There's grace and hope for you. There's forgiveness for you and cleansing. Maybe some of you have had, ex- near, have had experiences with suicide, members of your family that you have lost to suicide, and you, and you struggle, struggle with guilt over that and struggle with wondering what you could have done. Or how could you have preserved their life? Oh, there's hope for you. There's hope and cleansing and forgiveness and peace for you, for all of us. Isn't it interesting that so much of the New Testament was written by a man named Paul who was in the business of murdering Christians. He finds healing, he finds forgiveness, and he then finds the power to preserve life. This is the promise that the Sixth Commandment points to. The same Jesus who died in the place of murderous people, he rose again, and he promises this when he returns to rule. I'm going to end with these words from Revelation 21. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And Jesus, who sits seated on the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Let's pray. Lord, we submit ourselves to the piercing and convicting power of your law, but Lord, we, we, we run quickly to the hope and comfort of the gospel. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the giver of life who is willing to die for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would cleanse our consciences from guilt, and we ask that you give us the power to live as those who love the lives of others, who value others, and seek to preserve them, even when it's at great cost to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.